So I'd like to return tonight to the topic of teachers. The, the title of this talk is, The Buddha Did That? And I want to come back to um, talk about teachers and inexplicable teachers' behavior. How do we make sense of that? Zen has a long lineage of teachers. Uh, teachers mentor students, some of whom become teachers who mentor students, who become teachers, who mentor students. And this has been going on for more than 100 recorded generations since the time of the Buddha. And there are some Zen lineages that make a practice of knowing and reciting this lineage frequently. They chant the names of one teacher after the other, all the way from the Buddha to the present. You know, in my view, I think our teaching lineage is much more complex than a list of teachers. Every one of those teachers represents an entire generation of students and ways of practicing. Um, and like we do with, with Thich Nhat Hanh, for instance, we're a whole generation, and if we just remember one name, we haven't remembered really the richness of what's happening. And all of those generations, they inter-are there's some in that generation that span from one generation to the other. There are people from the younger generation teaching the people in the older generation. It's less like a line of a lineage and more like, a, like an amoeba. Uh, so I'm not sure that uh, it, it matters a whole lot to really know all of those names and uh, that lineage so much as we know that there has been this transmission that has taken place and it's a very rich and varied transmission. Let's take a moment to think about the teachers you've benefited from. Call to mind some of those teachers. And I imagine that some of those teachers played the teacher role explicitly and guided you with words. Like, like I'm doing now. Uh, and I think of that as description teaching. It's like offering you the menu, but I can't hand the, the food right to you. I can only offer you the menu in this kind of description teaching. But I imagine that far more of your teachers have taught you without consciously being aware that they are teaching you. They simply expressed their teaching by living their life, by being themselves. And I imagine that those expressions of their life changed you, maybe profoundly. I like to think of this as transmission teaching as opposed to description teaching. We receive transmission by direct observation of the teacher. Um, so a, a, a big example for me is watching Thich Nhat Hanh walk. That's a huge transmission to me, to see him do that when, when he still could walk. And his actual walking transmitted so much more than a description of walking meditation could transmit. And then if I think of some of my other teachers, I, 
I think that probably most of my teachers didn't even know they were teachers, didn't know that they were giving me an enormous gift. I think of my hospice patients, for example. I learned so much from those folks. I think of this last September when I hiked up to be among the bristlecone pines in Great Basin National Park. Those 4,000-year-old trees were my teachers. I learned a great deal from them. And really frequently when I walk up the stairs to the zendo in the morning, there's an owl or two owls sometimes calling out. And those are my teachers. Never for a moment does it cross any of their minds that they are teaching me. But nonetheless, they are teachers. I think we're all teachers and we're all students at the same time. We can't help but be teachers because every action transmits our heart. And we're teaching with every action, with every word and every thought. So it's easy to be a teacher, but I think few people choose to be students. It's harder to be a student. It takes intention to be a student, intention to learn from your circumstances. Mostly, we'd rather pretend to be victims of our circumstances than be students and learn from our circumstances. So that's a little preamble about, about teachers. Now I want to tell a story. This is the meat, uh, the meat of the, the Buddha did that. <clears throat> and this story is about description teaching and transmission teaching. It's about reading the menu versus eating the food. And this is from a, a sutra called Yasoja. And Yasoja was a leader of about 500 monks at the time of the Buddha. And Yasoja brought the 500 monks to join the Buddha one year for the rains retreat. And they arrived a bit early and were very excited to be there with the Buddha and the other monks. And they kind of showed up in a party mode. And they were greeting and having fun and making a whole bunch of noise. The Buddha turned to Ananda and he says, what is all that racket? And Ananda explained that the 500 monks were greeting the resident monks because they were all so excited to be here. The Buddha called all the monks into assembly that had arrived. And he said to these 500 that showed up, you are to go away. You are too noisy. I dismiss you. So that's a big deal, right? The Buddha did that because they all come for the rains retreat because walking across India in the monsoon season is a very difficult thing to do. So the Buddha, I imagine, knew that he was sending these 500 monks off in great difficulty. I dismiss you, he said. Yasoja, he led the 500 monks far away. They walked for days, and then they settled in for their own range retreat. And Yasoja said to the monks, the Buddha sent us away out of compassion. You should know that he's expecting us to practice deeply and successfully. This is why he sent us away. It was an expression of his deep love. So the monks agreed to practice diligently for the entire 90 days. And many had deep realizations. 
They did what the Buddha asked them to do. And one, one day toward the end of the, the rains retreat, the Buddha said to Ananda, I noticed there's this sense of deep peace over that direction. And Ananda said, oh yes, that's where those 500 monks went. And the Buddha says, please invite them back. So across the muddy plains they came and they arrived about seven o'clock in the evening. And when they arrived, they found the Buddha sitting silently in meditation. So all 500 of the monks sat down with the Buddha and began to meditate. And after this had gone on for a while, Ananda came up to the Buddha and said, Hey, um, they're all here and they'd like you to say something. And the Buddha didn't react at all. And Ananda came back a few hours later and said, um, They're here. Are you going to say anything? And the Buddha, no reaction. Finally, Ananda came back a third time and said this to the Buddha. Now, the, the Buddha had been sitting in a state of called imperturbability, where nothing bothered him. But he said, hmm, Ananda, you don't know what's going on. And that's why you've come to ask me three times. But this is what's going on. I was sitting in a state of imperturbability, and all the monks sat in that state with me not being disturbed by anything at all. This is the best situation we can have. We don't need anything else. We don't need any communication. You don't need greetings. You don't need any talk. It's the most beautiful thing that can happen between a teacher and a student. We just sat like that, each of us dwelling in a state of peace and solidity and freedom. So I love this story because this is a story of deep teaching, of transmission teaching. The Buddha saw that those 500 monks were not ready to receive transmission teaching. They wanted description teaching. And so he sent them away. And that seems such an odd thing to do. That seems such a hard thing to do. The Buddha, the master of compassion, would do that? But those monks, they practiced diligently for that whole 90-day rains retreat so that when they returned, they were ready to join the Buddha in his deepest teaching. They were ready to sit in this state of imperturbability, wordlessly, transcending all their distractions and their desires and their dislikes. They dwelt in direct contact with their Buddha nature. And there is no higher teaching that the Buddha could have offered them than that. And poor Ananda, in, in all these stories that come down, he always plays the fool. And, and I think Ananda was actually quite a wise teacher uh, in his own right. But you know, we've, got to have, we've got to have a foil. So Ananda gets to play that, and he kept trying to get the Buddha to give descriptive teaching rather than transmission teaching. And don't we do that too with our teachers? We try to get them to give us the menu instead of the food. So those 500 monks, they arrived expecting superficial happiness. They wanted to have fun with their friends. They wanted to receive a warm greeting from the Buddha. 
and probably listen to his, um, his teachings in a descriptive way. But the Buddha did not settle for that. He didn't settle for that. He did not want to settle for giving them superficial happiness. He gave them a profound gift. So I hope that none of us will be satisfied receiving a partial gift from our teachers. That we will be students as diligent as those monks and do the work that it takes so that we can receive the deepest teaching from our teachers. I think it's easier to be a teacher than a student. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit here. Let's talk about what a teacher actually is. And I want to talk about how we can receive gifts like that deep gift from the Buddha from our teachers. A teacher isn't somebody who has a special certificate. A teacher is one who lives in freedom in the present moment. A teacher is someone who takes each step in awareness, each breath in awareness. And when you see that teacher, you receive that true teaching. Tai uh, said once, the robe doesn't make a monk. It's the practice that makes a monk. There are those who don't wear monks' robes who really are monks. And I imagine the reverse is also true. There are those who wear monks' robes who aren't really monks. It's the practice that makes a monk, and it's the practice that makes a teacher. Those of us that wear these brown jackets, they don't matter. It's our practice that matters. So I'd like to propose a model that we might use to be able to benefit most from our teachers as students. Things, a way we can practice um, that opens our hearts to receive those deep teachings. And it revolves around uh, taking refuge. So each morning when I sit, before I, I sit on the cushion, I, I make three bows to the altar and I take refuge. I take refuge in the Buddha nature and all things, in the Dharma that's expressed by all things, and in the Sangha that is a reunion of the oneness of all things. Yeah. So this is a model of how we can practice with ourselves to utilize a teacher. Now, so what do I mean by that? So the teacher is not someone that we bow to, someone that we um, are subservient to. It's someone who expresses these three jewels, and we can see that they do that. I want to take the three jewels once, one at a time um, and talk about how the teacher expresses it and how we receive it. So let's talk about Buddha nature first. Uh, a teacher is someone who should have freedom. A teacher should have contact with their own Buddha nature. And that means that the teacher has transformed many of her hindrances. Not all. None of us are going to transform all of us. 
I don't know that there are living Buddhas in the world now that have transformed at that level. Maybe there are, but I've never met anybody, and certainly not me. But when you've transformed um, enough of your mental formations and your suffering, then, the, then that teacher's Buddha nature is present most of the time. But you might not know that because it's not visible. You can't see someone's wordless relationship with their own life, right? That, that's going on. So you have to trust that, that the, the teacher has touched and is touching this freedom, this Buddha nature. Um, but the next step sort of does give us something to look at. So the, the Dharma expression of a teacher, this is how the teacher expresses his or her Buddha nature by, their, by expressing the Dharma. And uh, I don't think that you can help but express your true nature in this way, because every thought, every action, every word is an expression of that. And we all can see when someone has that deep expression of their Buddha nature. Um, and that's the Dharma part of this. There's no one way to express your Buddha nature. Everybody's going to do it differently. We're all different. And I think about some of my uh, teachers that have influenced me. Um, for instance, Thich Nhat Hanh, his walking meditation, that's expressing his Buddha nature. Absolutely. That's his Dharma expression. His calligraphy, his poetry, hmm, many ways that he expresses it. But I think of other teachers like the Dalai Lama, for instance. He expresses his Buddha nature through the Dharma expression of joy. If you hear him laugh, you, you know that he is in touch with his own Buddha nature. And even the, the ancient Chinese teachers, they speak to me really strongly. And I think of Mazu, who taught with blows and shouts and kicks in this really difficult time in Chinese history. That was his Dharma expression of his Buddha nature. So there isn't a right way to do it. There isn't one way. You don't have to imitate someone else's way. Your own touching of Buddha nature will express its own uniqueness. One of my teachers, um, Peggy, she talks about it this way. She says, it's like beating the Dharma drum. You know, she, she tells me a lot, go beat the Dharma drum, boom, boom, boom. And everybody has a different drum and plays a different rhythm and a different song. Everybody. And an authentic teacher plays their song clearly and authentically. There's no confusion. You hear that teacher's Dharma drum. You know what it is. Bernie Glassman had his Dharma drum. Boom, a certain one. Joan Halifax, she has her Dharma drum. She beats it just that way. Sister Chan Kong, she has her Dharma drum and she beats it that way. You know their song. What's your song?
So the, the third, the Sangha aspect of this refuge practice, I think is really the key for understanding how the Buddha could do that, how teachers could do that, really? I think of that, that taking refuge in the Sangha as, as taking refuge in our unity again. When I bow to the Sangha each morning, I bow to the reunion of us all, the return of awareness that we are one in all our expressions of our Dharma teaching that's different. We come back as one, as a Sangha. Bowing to the Sangha each morning reminds me that my, my own Dharma expression is not enough. It's not enough. I'm not enough by myself as an individual. We have to come back together and remember our interbeing, express our interbeing. So mostly we're caught in our individualism, particularly in the West, we're really caught in that. And we're caught in the idea that I beat my Dharma drum like this, boom, 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 and you beat your Dharma drum like this, do, 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 do. We're caught in that, but it's only part of the truth. And this is where a teacher can really help because a teacher sees not only you as an individual, but sees you with Sangha eyes as part of the whole, sees you with the eyes of the Buddha nature that sees your deep truth in addition to your individual truth. So very often what happens is we as students come to our teachers with our individual minds, but the teacher is speaking with the Sangha eyes of seeing you as more than an individual, as more than just a single expression of the Dharma, but as something with Buddha nature. And they're pointing you back to that. Just like the Buddha pointed those monks back to their practice when they couldn't see that they needed to practice before they received the deepest transmission teaching. Often our own teachers are doing the same thing and it can offend us because we think, how could they do that? How could they say that? Don't they see that I need comfort or kindness? But they're seeing that you have the potential for so much more and they're pointing you there. They're speaking to your goodness when we as students often can only see our smallness. So there's lots of stories throughout the Zen literature about this. I just wanna quickly tell a couple of, of ones that are my favorites that I've, I've talked about a lot. So you'll recognize these stories. Um, one story is a, a monk has, is meeting with his teacher and the monk is talking on and on and on and on into the night. And finally the teacher says to the monk, maybe it's time to go to bed now. So as the student is about to step out of the room they're meeting in into the dark night, holding his candle, the teacher leans over and goes, blows the candle out so that the student steps out into complete darkness, not knowing where his foot's gonna fall. 
and he had a great realization. And the teacher asked, well, what have you attained? And the monk said, I will not doubt my teacher's words. So there's a story of a teacher who could see that this monk was so wrapped up in spinning stories and talking that he couldn't see his Buddha nature. And so the teacher swept that certainty out from under the monk. And it looked maybe to the monk for a short period of time like this man's a, 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 a cruel person. He wants me to fall down. But he saw through that darkness to his own Buddha nature. So that's a quick story. And then the other, the other story is one of my favorites about Mazu, who was teaching in this very, very difficult time in, in China when a third of the population had died due to famine and war. And so he had no time to mess around with his students. These students showed up on his doorstep suffering greatly, having lost their whole village, their family, everything. So the story goes that a monk came to see Mazu for the first time and he asked that coded Zen phrase, what is the meaning of Zen? Which means basically, what can you do for me? And Mazu said, bow down. And as the monk bowed down, Mazu kicked him in the chest. And the monk woke up. So you imagine this traumatized guy showing up, right? And, and, and he probably wanted Mazu to give him a hug. What's the meaning of Zen? A nice big hug. But what did Mazu do? No, he saw I, he deserves so much more than that. He deserves a kick in the chest that says, now, you have to wake up now in these circumstances. Life is so hard right now. There's no time to waste. You might die tomorrow. Boom. It was compassionate teaching. But it probably didn't look like that to the monk at that moment. So always in these stories, you know, they, they wake up. Well, who knows how that actually worked? <laughs> yeah, maybe the monk came up swinging. I don't know what, what really happened. Uh, but I like, to, I like to think that, you know, these look like strange responses um, for someone who's caught in their individual preferences, but they look like compassionate responses from someone who sees deeply into the medicine that they need to be liberated. The teacher sees that the student is so much more than the student knows. teacher sees them with sangha eyes. Hmm. So this is what the Buddha did for those 500 monks. You know, they came to the Buddha looking for superficial comfort, for community, for conversation, for rest after the long journey. But the Buddha wanted to give them freedom. So he sent them away in this really difficult way until they were ready to receive that gift. And then they came back and they did receive the gift. This is what you should expect from your teacher. You should not expect pleasantries. Um, you should not expect teachings that make you happy in a superficial way or in a, in a, a way of temporary comfort. 
you should expect a teacher to care for your deepest roots, to care for the Buddha nature that underlies you, to care for the Dharma expression of that Buddha nature that is your individuality. And to care for the Sangha eyes that you're developing that allow you to see the reunion of your individual and Buddha natures. And if you choose to be a diligent student like that, you should see the teacher in yourself. The way the teacher beats the Dharma drum becomes the rhythm of your own song. You'll, you'll add to it and you'll make it your own. But if you're practicing well, you'll always hear the teacher's song in your song. The teacher's rhythm in your rhythm. I can clearly hear the rhythm of my teachers in so many aspects of my life. I, I hear that rhythm in how I drink my tea how I invite the bell, how I breathe and how I walk, how I wash the dishes, how I enter the room of someone I'm caring for. All these, I hear my teacher's drum. I've added to it. I improvise on top of it but it's my teacher's rhythms are there. And from the other side of the equation, the student-teacher equation, the teacher, when they teach well, they will marvel at the Dharma songs that the students play. They will marvel at them. They will take great joy in hearing how the student takes that rhythm that they transmitted and turns it into something brand new that they could never have imagined themselves. And the only way for a teacher to know that their teaching has been effective is when they hear their own rhythms expressed in the individual beauty of that student. That's the only way they'll know. Student and teacher inter are. Okay, so I want to take this back to concrete. Um, what's happening right now. <clears throat> so Anacortes Mindfulness Community and I have renegotiated a new way that I'll work with the Sangha. And I think a way to follow up on this metaphor, I think that AMC is learning how to sing its own song right now. They've been learning really beautifully how to sing their own song. So I we're going to do it a little differently. I'm going to step back a little bit and I'm going to engage in the song more as a conductor 
and less as a member of the orchestra. And so I've been at most sittings from the time we started until now, but I won't be doing that as much. I'll be here once a month to offer a Dharma talk, and I'll be leading quarterly days of mindfulness, and we'll be doing annual retreats and practice periods, but not every week. I think uh, Anacharist Mindfulness Community is ready to, to find out how, how they are going to take this rhythm from their teachers and begin to play it beautifully and uniquely in their own way. Um, now, I've been one of the things I've done when I'm here each week is that I offer time for practice interviews. And so that's, that's going to shift. I'll still have time for that, for, for practice interviews, but I'll be doing that outside of the sitting time. So I'm going to offer uh, times that you can sign up for and we can meet one-on-one -on -one by Zoom. And uh, I've started a new website, just launched it today. It's called radiantlightzen.org. And, and there's a mentorship page there that you can sign up for for um, those practice interviews. And we'll send something out in the newsletter about that so you know, you know what to do. But we've come, Michael and I together have come up with a, a mentorship agreement. And I just want to say just briefly what it is that I'll be offering and that Michael will be offering also with, with people. Um, and from the student side, um, here's what we're asking that people do that people that, that want to do this one-on-one -on -one work together with us, that they maintain a daily meditation practice. That's one. And that you participate in Sangha life. It'd be great if it was a Sangha that I was involved in, but it doesn't have to be. But having a Sangha is important, just like having a daily practice is important. Um, that you will attend one or more retreats a year and that you'll initiate at least one meeting with me monthly. And that you'll also offer monthly dana. Uh, so those are the things that we ask of people that will work with us. So um, we'll, you know, from what we'll offer is we will offer to teach from our own experience and to guide you from our own experience. Um, not necessarily as representatives of Plum Village, but from our own experience. And um, to keep your information, of course, confidential um, and support you in the way that you need to be supported to give, us our, to give you our best. So that's the, that's the basics of how, how we can do this together. Hmm. That's a lot of words. I just gave you a huge barrage of words. So please, um, if you can, uh, get the food, let go of the menu. Don't think that this descriptive teaching that I've given you is the thing. Touch this for yourself. Try out this taking refuge in your Buddha nature, in your own Dharma expression, and in your refuge in the Sangha to recollect, reunite your individual and Buddha natures together with everyone else. Trust that. Don't trust all the words that I've, that I've offered. They're just words. Just words. 
Well, thank you all for giving me your kind attention. And I'll invite the sound of the bell. <laughs>